All right, we'll open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're in our fourth week of our series, Acts, Mission and Message. And today we're coming to the section of Acts known as Pentecost. It's the arrival of the promised Holy Spirit who was to empower Jesus' disciples to be his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's a familiar passage to lots of us. Um, It's beautiful, it's exciting, but it's sadly also often quite divisive. It shouldn't be. It doesn't need to be. In fact, it should actually be the opposite, but maybe you'll see where we get to when we get there. Um, The other thing I want to let you know of is it's a bit of a long passage today. Lee got here and he said, you got 21 verses. So he preached on five last week. He's given me 21 today. So if we're super long, that's why. And you'll get home to your turkey though. Don't worry. Um, Before we do jump into God's word, let's actually pray specifically that he would open up our eyes uh, to what he has to say for us today, our eyes and our ears. Father, we, we pray that you would, through your spirit, the same one that we're going to read about this morning, the same one who is in us, who points us to you, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to what it is you have to say to us, and that your word would cause us to love you more as we read it. We pray that in your name. Amen. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language." And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya that belong to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And it shall, or pardon me, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall be... Or so it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whew, it's a lot. So we're going to take this in chunks. We're going to take it in three sections that we're going to be titling those The Means, The Multitude, and The Message. And we're going to start with verses 1 to 4 and take a look at the means of what's happening here. So verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and it suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, Pentecost. Now, I wonder how many of you in here were like me, and for most of your life, you've thought that the word Pentecost, outside of it being, you know, the name of a charismatic denomination, the word Pentecost was like a Greek word with two root words put together, like the word pente, which means spirit, and the word cost, which means pouring. That's not true. That's, that's actually not what that means at all. It's not. Um, yeah, no, I thought it was. It turns out it's not. All those definitions are not real. When Luke wrote, when the day of Pentecost arrived, shouldn't be news to us, but I'm guessing it is, he wasn't giving this event a title. Pentecost was a long-held Jewish festival that was instituted to celebrate a couple of things. It was to celebrate the wheat harvest. It's also called the Feast of Weeks. Some Christian traditions celebrate Wit Sunday or Wheat Sunday shortly after Easter. It was also to celebrate God's giving His people the law, the Torah. He gave it to Moses on Mount Sinai in the wilderness 50 days after the Passover when the sacrificial lamb was killed. So Pentecost actually means 50 or 50th. The day of Pentecost came 50 days after Passover. And it's pretty great that God gave his people his law on Mount Sinai 50 days after the Passover lamb would have been killed. Just like he did that 50 days after his own son, the lamb of God, was killed, he poured out his spirit on his people, which would actually enable them to live out the law and the life that he had called his people to. Now, in a passage like this, bringing up some of one of those little obscure little bits and pieces of things, it leads us potentially into falling into the trap of trying to find all the hidden messages that are in here, right? The secret codes, the cool things to mine out of this. And while there are some stuff in here, there's some things in here that would be really great to study and to dig into. We have a tendency to get so deep into the weeds on these things that we miss the point of what's actually going on. Because as we're going to see today, or at least I hope that we're going to see today, the message that's being delivered to us in this passage is actually quite clear. And it might not be what many of us have always thought it was. When the day of Pentecost arrived, it's verse 1, they were all together in one place. So Jesus' disciples are all together. They're likely praying or worshiping or recounting the experiences of the last few weeks. Um, But they're waiting together like they were instructed by Jesus. We read this in the first week of our study of Acts. While staying with them, this is Jesus, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus then ascends into heaven, and the disciples wait expectantly. So it shouldn't come as a surprise, though I'm sure it probably did for some of the people, like the wind and the fire. It was probably a surprise for some. But we get to this in verse 2. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So this sound that we're told in Scripture is like the sound of a like a mighty rushing wind. It wasn't a mighty rushing wind that came from heaven. It filled the whole house. A sound. And then tongues as of fire. Or tongues, 
the shape of tongues that resembled fire. They weren't fire, but they resembled fire. They descended and rested on each of the disciples. Now, again, this is another one of these things. Just so you know the way this is going to work, I'm saying we shouldn't go digging into the weeds, but then I'm going to dig in the weeds a whole bunch. This is going to be the way that it is. But as an aside, Jesus says, wait for the Holy Spirit. And how does he show up? How does the Spirit show up? The sound of wind and the appearance of fire. The Greek word for wind and spirit and breath, it's all the same basic word. Pneuma, it's where we get the word pneumatic, like pneumatic tires, right? Filled with air. In Genesis, before the creation of the world, the Spirit of God is also translated the wind of God was hovering over the waters. There was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And those of us who were on the cutting edge of worship music in B.C. in the 90s are all humming wind of the Spirit right now. And if you weren't, now you are and you're welcome. Wind and fire. God led the people of Israel through the wilderness with a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. Prior to that, when he revealed himself to Moses, he did so in a burning bush, right? A bush lit up with a fire that didn't consume it. It wasn't fire. The disciples, they get to see tongues as of fire coming down and resting on them. Look, Jesus' promise of the coming of his spirit is fulfilled in dramatic fashion and how amazing it would have been to see that. And I think our tendency as well is to sit there and go, well, if only I could see that. Like if I could hear God's spirit moving, if I could see the fire coming down, then, then I would believe or I would, I would feel more empowered to do things. But what we have found time and time again is that when people, ourselves included, are met with the supernatural and the miraculous, it actually doesn't do what we think it would. Right? Just last week, we talked about Judas. He spent years with Jesus. He saw miracle after miracle, and then what happened? He betrayed Jesus and took his own life. Again, that's not the point of this passage. It's all there, and it's great. Spending time on it can be beneficial as long as it doesn't come at the cost of the point. And now you're asking, what's the point? Can you please get there? I have a turkey in the oven. We need to get home. We're getting there, I promise. The next verse gets us a bit closer to the point that we're trying to make this morning. Though There's still a lot here to get hung up on. Verse 3, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay. So, tongues. We could get hung up here for a long time, right? Like, we could do weeks on this. The topic of other tongues is a divisive one for churches. Some churches place a significant emphasis on gifts of the Spirit, like speaking in tongues or healing. Um, Others shy away from them. Others flat out deny their existence at all today. When I was 14, 1989, Stouffville, Ontario, Went Sam's Diner in Gormley with our youth group after Sunday night church. You guys remember Sunday night church? It was the best. We'd go and we'd hang out, have nachos or whatever. But we're in the lobby waiting to get seated, and this old guy starts talking to us. Now, he's probably 30, but at 14, is kind of a thing. But he starts talking to us, and he finds out that we're from a church. And he's like, oh, well, I started speaking in tongues when I... W-. And I'm like, sorry, what? What did you... The first time... In my life that I had heard the phrase, speaking in tongues, was in the lobby of Sam's Diner. 14. Because my church didn't talk about it. Because they were afraid. 
And it was polarizing. But the sad thing is, this passage should not be polarizing at all. It should be the opposite. I'm, I'm getting, my, getting ahead of myself a little bit again. But when we look at what took place, this passage is about unity. It's about inclusion. And I know that word carries with it a lot of baggage these days, but stick with me. If we study this passage and all we do is come away with ammunition to argue with other believers as to why our interpretation of Scripture is right, we've missed the point. Is there objective truth to be found in these passages? Yes. Is there a right way to read these passages? Yes. Is the goal to elevate one tribe of Christianity above another? No, it's not. You remember in our study of Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, right? If you have the Spirit in you, the things that evidence that are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, the works of the flesh are strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. So if what we get from this passage is a sense of superiority, we've not only missed the point, we've taken Scripture and used it to actually promote sin and the flesh and self. Okay, mini rant over for now. Let's get back on track. They're all together in one place, okay? There's a sound like that of a mighty rushing wind and the appearance of tongues of fire, and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Love the ESV, don't you? When was the last time you used the word utterance in an email or just a conversation? They're speaking as the Spirit gives them the opportunity. They're not seeking this out. They're not trying to speak in other tongues. The Spirit is prompting them to do so. Even that aside, look, what happened here? The pouring out of God's Spirit is a massive shift, a massive shift in how God operated. It was unprecedented, right? Like up till now, the Holy Spirit would come upon specific people at specific times for a specific purpose. You think of prophets and judges and kings and priests. The prophet Ezekiel describes the work of the Spirit in him when he says this in Ezekiel 2. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Shortly after Saul was anointed king of Israel, we read, When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. The Spirit came to Saul, wasn't on Saul already. Now, before Pentecost, God's Spirit didn't reside permanently in His people. And if His Spirit was on or in someone, there was no guarantee that the Spirit would stay. In Psalm 51, after David had been caught in sin, he prayed, Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Which can seem like a bit of a weird prayer for us today because we always talk about the fact that when you become a follower of Jesus, when his spirit takes up residence in you and just starts pointing your heart towards him, he doesn't stop. He doesn't leave. Scripture reminds us that he will never leave us or forsake us, that the one who started a great work in you will see it through to completion. But this is part of the new covenant, right? The new covenant that we celebrate each week when we take communion together. But this wasn't always the case. God had put his spirit in David, but David's disobedience threatened that, and he knew it. He had seen what had happened to Saul, because as King Saul's heart moved further and further away from God, something terrible happened. For Samuel 16, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Now, the coming and going of God's spirit isn't always tied to righteousness, 
Right? Sometimes God would use wicked people like Balaam as a, as a prophet. Uh, God would use his spirit as he saw fit to accomplish his purpose. But, but this, this was different. This was something very different. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. On this day, God poured out his spirit on his people and he wouldn't call him back. He would continue his work in and through us and his people until that job is complete. Um, Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper likened this event to the construction and deployment of a new water system for a new city. The valves are opened and the houses and businesses downstream are provided with running water. It's a blessing both to those in the houses and those who have access to the system around them. And any time a new house is built... All they have to do is tie in to an existing system and reap the benefits of what was done for them in the past. There's no need for another water station to be built. There's no need to turn on any more taps. What God did here changed everything forever. And it's something that can't and does not need to be repeated. Right? Instead of giving his spirit to one or two or three people, he gave it to all of his people. And those people are those who, as we read in Galatians, have placed their faith in Jesus. And so the benefits of what happened 2,000 years ago are made available to those of us today who have put our faith in Jesus. We don't need the wind. We don't need the tongues of fire. What we need and what we celebrate is the work of God's Spirit in us to accomplish His purposes. Last week or pardon me, in week two of our study, Lee pointed out this thought when he was talking about the purpose of the gift that God was sending. When we read this in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the purpose of the outpouring of God's Spirit was and still is to equip and empower his people to be his witnesses, Right? to tell others about him, or as we like to say around here, to know Jesus and make him known. I'm doing things out of order a little bit, but if you look ahead to verse 11 of our passage, there's a crowd gathered from all over the place, and they hear the disciples speaking in other tongues, and their response is this. They say, we hear them telling in our own language, and what are they being told in their own languages? The mighty works of God. It's not... The means, it's the message. In much the same way that the talking donkey wasn't the point when God confronted Balaam's rebellion. Like as a kid, that was my favorite story. Not because of how great God was, because there was a talking donkey, right? The plagues in Egypt, they weren't the point. The water that Jesus turned into wine wasn't the point. All of those things point to the mighty works of God. That is what. Or maybe that's who we should be making very much of. That's one of the reasons, guys, and I know it might seem like we try sometimes, but we're not trying to be flashy here. Because we're going to get distracted by the means. When the disciples were speaking in other tongues, they weren't just telling stories or giving self-help messages, right? The message that they were conveying was the mighty works of God. A few years back, 
uh, writer Francis Chan said that we treat God's word, the gospel, right, this incredible message, the mighty works of God, we treat it like Pez. You know those gross little stale sugar bricks that you get in your stocking? They're gross, right? Unless you're a psychopath or a sugar addict, you're not ever wishing that there was just a bowl of Pez you could dig into. No, if you want to enjoy Pez, you got to dress it up, right? you got to swear a bunch. Well, you contort your hands to try to hold a stack of these pellets to try to not drop them into the squeaky spring-loaded Marvel or My Little Pony dispenser. It's not about the Pez. It's about the dispenser. But the mighty works of God are not Pez. They're life-giving, life-changing. And if Lee and I get up here on Sundays and we do our little song and dance and all that you remember is that we made you laugh or we made you feel bad about something or we made you feel good about something, you've missed the point. And that means we've missed the point as well. It's not about tongues or wind or fire. It's about Jesus. It's about God the Father. It's about the Holy Spirit jumping up and down, pointing heavenward, saying, look at what he has done for you. I'm so far ahead of myself. I'm sorry. I'm going to put this rant on pause for a couple minutes. We're coming back to this rant, though. We've only made it through four verses. We've got 21. Let's keep rolling. Verse 5. We're going to read this section under the heading of the multitude. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then they list off all the places that they're from. And they say, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were perplexed and amazed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But then others mocked and said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. So remember, Jews from all over have descended on Jerusalem for Pentecost, which we knew before we got here. We all knew that Pentecost was like an established thing. It's not something that was news to us today. It's very likely that these people who had come for the Festival of Weeks would also have heard about Jesus, who was executed just a few weeks before, right? 50 days before now. Some of them probably were in attendance at the crucifixion. These are devout Jews who take their religion very, very seriously. Luke lists off the places and regions that they've come from. Again, there's lots of stuff in there. And if we wanted to, we could spend time digging into how this list is a reflection of the places that Jesus said there would be the witnesses, right? Like Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Or the geographical direction, like it kind of moves from east to west. Or the significance of those regions in the overarching narrative of the big God story that we find in the pages of the Bible, but we're not going to do that today. We are, though, going to get into some weeds, just for a little bit. Verses 5 to 8 push us more toward the point of the passage, not further out to the periphery. And it has to do with the fact that the multitude that has gathered is hearing this message in their own languages. Verses 5 to 8. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, 
because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So this regionally diverse group of people here, they're hearing Galileans, probably with their redneck accents, speaking in their native tongues of these people who have gathered, these onlookers. The word translated here is literally dialects, specific particular regional dialects. And what was the crowd's response? Well, first, verse 6 tells us, bewilderment. Another good word I don't really use in emails. The Greek word that's translated bewildered here is the word sunkeo. And another instance of this word is in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Check out Genesis 11, verse 4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they purpose or propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off the building of the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Like a lot of you know the story of the Tower of Babel. And because of their sinful pride, God came and confused, bewildered, it's the same word, he sunkeoed their language and spread them all over the earth. And now, as he continues his plan of redemption through Jesus, through his spirit, through his people, in our passage, he has gathered these people who were dispersed over all the face of the earth to one place. Remember, verse 5 of our passage, they were dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And though the text doesn't explicitly say it, it does seem like Luke had it in his mind that what God was doing here was actually a reversal of Babel. Because the birth of the church of Jesus Christ, and that's what we're seeing here, We're seeing the birth of the church, a group of people who have been given the gift of and have been filled with the Holy Spirit to make Jesus known to the world, right? Crossridge, that's that's us. That's who we are. That's who we're supposed to be, a group of people who have been given the gift of the Spirit, commissioned to make Jesus known to our community, our city, our province, our country, to the ends of the earth. That's who we are. That's what a church is. If it's something else, it's not a church. The birth of the church is happening in full view and with the intention of including people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Instead of the segregation that was at that time and has continued and probably will continue until Jesus comes back and fixes it. Instead of segregation, everyone is included. And everyone who's there gets the message in a language they can understand, which was God's plan from the start. Look at this in Zephaniah. I think it's the first time I've quoted from Zephaniah in a sermon. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. 
So I had actually said earlier that this is a reversal of Babel. I think maybe it's better to see this as a redemption of Babel because we don't see God gathering his people from all over and forcing them to stay in one place and teaching them a new language and making them all speak it. Instead, we see him bringing people together from all over the world and giving them the same, or as Zephaniah put it, a pure message. The speech, the message. And he gave it to them in a multitude of languages. It's taking nationalism out of the discussion. It's removing race as a barrier. It's removing class. And this is how the church must be. We discussed this at length in our study of Galatians. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male, no female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's what we're supposed to be. And it sounds a whole lot like what we read in verses 15 to 21, which we're going to read under the heading of the message. We're so close, guys. We're so close. Verse 15, Peter says, But this, they're not drunk, but this, this thing that you're seeing, this thing that you hear, the wind, the fire, the tongues, what you are hearing here, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes directly from Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the initial response of the people uh, is confusion. For some, it turns to mockery. They're drunk. Peter's like defense of that just is, is an odd one. It's just nine in the morning. Never seen anybody make a bad choice in the morning, right? But Peter shoots that down. And then he gets into a sermon that's going to take us through our next couple of weeks of study of this book. He says, they're not. They're not drunk. What you're seeing, this, this thing that you're seeing, is what was said by the prophet Joel. And then he does this like, it's, it's a verbatim quote. This is from Joel. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This, he says, this, what you're seeing here, again, the wind, the fire, the speaking in tongues, this is that. This is what God, through his prophet Joel, told us was coming. And here it is, happening right now. This is that. So as much as this might be something that God is going to do again in a different way, like the left-behinders would suggest... Peter is telling us that this particular prophecy is being fulfilled right here, right now, not something that's coming down the line. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This is that. And then, and then, and some of you are now grabbing your armrests because you know what's coming next. 
in the same breath, this is that, he says this, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So at the risk of bumping into some pretty tightly held beliefs on the matter, if what the crowd is seeing is a fulfillment of God's promise to pour out His Spirit on His people, it's actually safe to assume the same about verses 19 to 20. It's important to remember that when Jesus was crucified, there were signs in the heavens and on the earth. Remember, darkness covered the earth. There was a great earthquake. At the coming of the Spirit, we had wind. We had fire. Now, I know we're not given reports of all the things on Joel's list happening in in the Gospels or Acts for that matter. Is it possible that this is referring to a far-off time? Sure, it's possible. A lot of really smart people have been debating this for years and have not come to consensus. There's not consensus in this room. I do know that. But guess what? That's not the point. It's not the point of the passage. Whether the moon turned to blood 2,000 years ago or if it's going to happen in 2030 or 20,030, it doesn't matter. I mean, I guess, so if we were to walk out there today and there was a blood moon, it might matter, right? right? We might need to talk about this. Something crazy has happened. We'll need to respond somehow. But that response, the way that we do that is the point, isn't it? You know what? Let's, let's do it. We've made it this whole time with no points. So here's your first point, and we will close with this. Point number one, and it's just verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There it is. So devout men from every nation under heaven returned home. When they went back to where they had come from, what was the message? I mean, sure, they would have been like, guys, it was crazy. There was wind, there was fire. People were talking, it was amazing. But what are they going to share? The report would have been, I saw and heard the mighty works of God. And now I know our only hope is Jesus. We need to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Saved from what? Our sin. The coming judgment of God. Saved from the slavery to law. Saved from fear and from chasing after all the wrong things that will never satisfy. It's the same message that you should be getting. We should all be hearing here at Crossridge week in and week out. That it's not about coming together and being with a great group of people, which is a big bonus to this. I'm really grateful you're a great group of people because if you weren't, my job would be miserable. It's not about coming to a place that has air conditioning that blows at the wrong time and heat that blows at the wrong time. It's not about coming to a cool old movie theater or a newly renovated ministry space across the street or a great worship team or very attractive preachers or community groups or events or kids ministry or youth ministry or preaching topics or styles, retreats, lunches, classes. None of those things are the point. Crossridge Church is not the mission It's not the message. It's not even really the means. We're the multitude. We're the ones who need Jesus and his spirit, who is the means by which we are empowered to present and live out the message of the gospel. So when the disciples were speaking in other tongues, declaring his mighty works, they were talking about Jesus. They were being his witnesses, empowered by his spirit, and the overflow of the spirit working in their hearts was telling the mighty works 
of God. And if we have that same spirit in us, and we do, if we're followers of Jesus and have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, this is the outworking. It comes out of us in the form of declaring the mighty works of God, which is the gospel of Jesus. It's evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit, right? Again, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. But the Spirit also delights and works so hard in us to point us to Jesus, to what he's done, so that we will be compelled to tell others as the Spirit gives us utterance, compels us. The message is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the point. The point is not wind. It never was. It's not fire. It's not tongues. It's not wonders in heaven. It's not signs on earth. Like if the moon were to turn to blood today, our response shouldn't be, wow. Or, I was right. Yes. Signs and wonders are there to point us to Jesus, to remind us of the urgency that's there too, right? Time is short. We don't live forever. Everyone is going to have to stand in judgment before God. Our only hope, humanity's only hope is Jesus. And when the means of his movement, when the things he uses to speak to us, you know, like worship songs or miracles or like a preacher or a teacher of some kind or nature, when you're out in the mountains, when they grab our heart more than the message, when they grab our heart more than the messenger, Right? When the miracle grabs our heart more than Jesus does, we've completely missed the point of what he's trying to do. Whether or not you and I agree on how to read passages like these ones, the bottom line has to be shared. There are so many things that the enemy would love us to grumble and fight over. There are so many things he's been successful at getting us to grumble and fight over. Instead, we need to pray that our wonder in these things flows into worship, that what we see God doing will not just have us sitting back, slow clapping God, right? Nodding in agreement, but that it would cause us with just the regular old tongues that we have, just in plain conversational English, to declare the mighty works of God so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the point. So we can work on that together. Let's pray, and we'll spend some time in communion as well. God, we, we thank you for the fact that your spirit has empowered us to do this, that you have not given us a task that we can't complete. And we pray that we would not be distracted by the things that that are taking place, by the ways that you try to grab our attention, God, we pray that we would see it, we would have our attention uh, directed to you, but that we wouldn't get hung up on what it was that we saw, but that we get hung up on seeing you. So we just pray that in your name. Amen.